Section 16 of God and My Neighbor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jared Duran. God and My Neighbor by Robert Blatchford. Section 16 The Gospel Witnesses. As men of the world, with some experience in sifting and weighing evidence, what can we say about the evidence for the resurrection? In the first place, there is no acceptable evidence outside the New Testament, and the New Testament is the authority of the Christian Church. In the second place, there is nothing to show that the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses of the alleged facts. In the third place, the Apostle Paul was not an eyewitness of the alleged fact. In the fourth place, Although there is some evidence that some of the Gospels were known in the first century, there is no evidence that the Gospels as we know them were then in existence. In the fifth place, even supposing that the existing Gospels and the Epistles of Paul were originally composed by men who knew Christ, and that these men were entirely honest and capable witnesses, there is no certainty that what they wrote has come down to us unaltered. The only serious evidence of the resurrection being in the books of the New Testament we are bound to scrutinize those books closely, as on their testimony the case for Christianity entirely depends. Who, then, are the witnesses? They are the authors of the Gospel, the Acts, and the Epistles of Peter and of Paul. Who were these authors? Matthew and John are supposed to have been disciples of Christ, but were they? I should say Matthew certainly was not contemporary with Jesus, for in the last chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, we read as follows, quote, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guards came into the city and told unto the chief priest all things that were come to pass. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say yet his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this came to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and rid you of care. So they took the money, and they did as they were taught. And this saying was spread abroad among the Jews, and continueth until this day. Unquote. Matthew tells us that the saying continueth until this day. Which day? The day on which Matthew is writing or speaking? Now a man does not say of a report or belief that it continueth until this day, unless that report or belief originated a long time ago. And the use of such a phrase suggests that Matthew told or repeated the story after a lapse of many years. That apart, there is no genuine historical evidence outside the New Testament that such men as Paul, Peter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John ever existed. Neither can it be claimed that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually wrote the Gospels which bear their names. These Gospels are called the Gospels according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, and the Gospel according to John. They were, then, Gospels condensed, paraphrased, or copied from some older Gospels, or they were Gospels taken down from dictation, or composed from the verbal statements of the men to whom they were attributed. Thus it appears that the Gospels are mainly reports or copies of some verbal or written statements made by four men of whom there is no historic record whatever. How are we to know that these men ever lived? How are we to know that they were correctly reported, if they ever spoke or wrote? 
How can we rely upon such evidence after 1900 years? And upon a statement of the facts so important and so marvelous? The same objection applies to the evidence of Peter and of Paul. Many critics and scholars deny the existence of Peter and Paul. There is no trustworthy evidence to oppose to that conclusion. That, by the way, let us now examine the evidence given in these men's names. The earliest witness is Paul. Paul does not corroborate the gospel writer's statements as to the life or the teachings of Christ, but he does vehemently assert that Christ rose from the dead. What is Paul's evidence worth? He did not see Christ crucified. He did not see his dead body. He did not see him quit the tomb. He did not see him in the flesh after he had quitted the tomb. He was not present when he ascended into heaven. Therefore, Paul is not an eyewitness of the acts of Christ, nor of the death of Christ, nor of the resurrection of Christ, nor of the ascension of Christ. If Paul ever lived, which none can prove and many deny, his evidence for the resurrection was only hearsay evidence. Paul, in the Epistles to the Corinthians, says that after his resurrection, Christ was seen of about 500 persons, of whom the great part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. But none of the Gospels mention this 500, nor does Paul give the name of any of them, nor is the testimony of any one of them preserved in the Testament or elsewhere. Now let us remember how difficult it was to disprove the statements of the claimant in the Trichbone case. Although the trial took place in the lifetime of the claimant, and although most of the witnesses knew the real Roger Trichborne well, and let us also bear in mind that many critics and scholars dispute the authorship of Shakespeare's plays, as to which strong contemporary evidence is forthcoming, and then let us ask ourselves whether we shall be justified in believing such a marvelous story as this of the resurrection upon the evidence of men whose existence cannot be proved, and in support of whose statements there is not a scrap of historical evidence of any kind. Nor is this all. The stories of the resurrection as told in the Gospels are full of discrepancies, and are rendered incredible by the interpolation of miraculous incidents. Let us begin with Matthew. Did Matthew see Christ crucified? Did Matthew see Christ's dead body? Did Matthew see Christ quit the tomb? Did Matthew see Christ in the flesh and alive after his resurrection? Did Matthew see Christ ascend into heaven? Matthew nowhere says so, nor is it stated by any other writer in the Testament that Matthew saw any of these things. No, Matthew nowhere gives evidence in his own name. Only in the Gospel, according to Matthew, is it stated that such things did happen. Matthew's account of the resurrection and the incidents connected therewith differs from the accounts in the other Gospels. The story quoted above from Matthew as to the bribing of Roman soldiers by the priests to circulate the falsehood about the stealing of Christ's body by his disciples is not alluded to by Mark, Luke, or John. Matthew, in his account of the facts of the resurrection, says that there was an earthquake when the angel rolled away the stone. In the other Gospels, there is no word of this earthquake, but not in any of the Gospels is it asserted that any man or woman saw Jesus leave the tomb. The story of his actual rising from the dead was first told by some woman or women who said they had seen an angel or angels who had declared that Jesus was risen. There is not an atom of evidence that these young men who told the story were angels. There is not an atom of evidence that they were not men, nor that they had not helped to revive or remove the swooned or dead Jesus. Stress has been laid upon the presence of the Roman guard, the presence of such a guard is improbable. 
but if the guard was really there, it might have been as easily bribed to allow the body to be removed, as Matthew suggests that it was easily bribed to say that the body had been stolen. Matthew says that after the resurrection, the disciples were ordered to go to Galilee. Mark says the same. Luke says they were commanded not to leave Jerusalem. John says they did go to Galilee. So again, with regard to the ascension, Luke and Mark say that Christ went up to heaven. Matthew and John do not so much as mention the ascension. And it is curious, as Mr. Foote points out, that the two apostles who were supposed to have been disciples of Christ and might be supposed to have seen the ascension, if it took place, do not mention it. The story of the ascension comes to us from Luke and Mark, who were not present. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Yet Luke makes him say to the thief on the cross, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Matthew, Mark, and John do not repeat this blunder. There are many other differences and contradictions in the gospel versions of the resurrection and ascension. But as I do not regard those differences as important, I shall pass them by. Whether or not the evidence of these witnesses be contradictory, the fact remains that no one of them states that he knows anything about the matter of his own knowledge, that no one of them claims to have himself heard the story of the woman, or the women, or the angels, that no one of them states that the women saw, or said they saw, Christ leave the tomb. As for the alleged appearances of Christ to the disciples, those appearances may be explained in several ways. We may say that Christ really had risen from the dead and was miraculously present. We may say that the accounts of his miraculous appearance are legends, or we may say that his reappearance was not miraculous at all, for he had never died, but only swooned. As Huxley remarked, when we are asked to consider an alleged case of the resurrection, the first essential fact to make sure of is the fact of death. Before we argue as to whether a dead man came to life, let us have evidence that he was dead. Considering the story of the crucifixion as historical, it cannot be said that the evidence of Christ's death is conclusive. Death by crucifixion was generally a slow death. Men often lingered on the cross for days before they died. Now Christ was only on the cross for a few hours, and Pilate is reported as expressing surprise when told that he was dead. To make sure that the other prisoners were dead, the soldiers broke their legs, but they did not break Christ's legs. To be sure, the Apostle John reports that a soldier pierced Christ's side with a spear, but the authors of the three synoptic gospels do not mention this wounding with a spear. Neither do they allude to the other story told by John as to the skepticism of Thomas and his putting his hand into the wound made by the spear. It is curious that John is the only one to tell both stories, so curious that both stories look like interpolations. But even if we accept the story of the spear thrust, it affords no proof of death, for John adds that there issued from the wound blood and water, and blood does not flow from wounds inflicted after death. Then, when the body of Christ was taken down from the cross, it was not examined by any doctor, but was taken away by friends and laid in a cool sepulcher. What evidence is forthcoming that Christ did not recover from a swoon and that his friends did not take him away in the night? Remember, we are dealing with probabilities in the absence of any exact knowledge of the facts, and consider which is more probable, that a man had swooned and recovered, or that a man, after lying for three days dead, should come to life again and walk away. Apologists will say that the probabilities in the case of a man do not hold in the case of a god. 
but there is no evidence at all that Christ was a God. Prove that Christ was a God, and therefore that he was omnipotent, and there is nothing impossible in the resurrection, however improbable his death may seem. Even assuming that the Gospels are historical documents, the evidence for Christ's death is unsatisfactory, and that for his resurrection quite inadequate. But is there any reason to regard the gospel stories of the death, resurrection, and ascension on of Christ as historical? I say that we have no surety that these stories have come down to us as they were originally compiled, and we have strong reasons for concluding that these stories are mythical. Some two or three years ago, the Reverend R. Horton said, Either Christ was the Son of God, and one with God, or he was a bad man, or a madman. There is no fourth alternative possible. That is a strange statement to make, but it is an example of the shifts to which apologists are frequently reduced. No fourth alternative possible? Indeed there is, and a fifth. If a man came forward today and said he was the Son of God and one with God, we should conclude that he was an imposter or a lunatic. But if a man told us that another man had said he was a God, we should have what Mr. Horton calls a fourth alternative open to us. For we might say that the person who reported his speech to us had misunderstood him, which would be a fourth alternative, or that the person had willfully misrepresented him, which would be a fifth alternative. So in the Gospels. Nowhere have we a single word of Christ's own writing. His sayings come to us through several hands and through more than one translation. It is folly, then, to assert that Christ was God or that he was mad or an imposter. So in the case of the gospel stories of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and ascension of Christ, many worthy people may suppose that in denying the facts stated in the gospels, we are accusing St. Matthew and St. John of falsehood. But there is no certainty who St. Matthew and the others were. There is no certainty that they wrote these stories. Even if they did write them, they probably accepted them at second or third hand, with the best faith in the world. They may have not been competent judges of evidence and after they had done their best, their testimony may have been added to or perverted by editors and translators. Looking at the Gospels, then, as we should look at any other ancient documents, what internal evidence do they afford in support of the suspicion that they are mythical? In the first place, the whole Gospel story teems with miracles. Now, as Matthew Arnold said, miracles never happen. Science has made the belief in miracles impossible. When we speak of the antagonism between religion and science, it is this fact which we have in our mind, that science has killed the belief in miracles, and, as all religions are built up upon the miraculous, science and religion cannot be made to harmonize. As Huxley said, quote, The magistrate who listens with devout attention to the percept, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live on Sunday, on Monday dismisses, as intrinsically absurd, a charge of bewitching a cow brought against some old woman, the superintendent of a lunatic asylum who substituted exorcism for rational modes of treatment would have but a short tenure of office. Even parish clerks doubt the utility of prayer for rain so long as the wind is in the east, and an outbreak of pestilence sends them not to churches, but to the drains. In spite of prayers for the success of our arms and T. Demis for victory, our real faith is in big bastulations and keeping our powder dry. In knowledge of the science of warfare, in energy, courage, and discipline. In these, as in all other practical affairs, we act on the aphorism, laborar est orar. We admit 
that intelligent work is the only acceptable worship, and that, whether there be a supernature or not, our business is with nature. End quote. We have ceased to believe in miracles. When we come upon a miracle in any historical document, we feel not only that the miracle is untrue, but also that its presence reduces the value of the document in which it's contained. Thus, Matthew Arnold, in Literature and Dogma, after saying that we shall find ourselves inevitably led, sooner or later, to extend one rule to all miraculous stories, and that the considerations which apply in other cases apply, we shall most surely discover, with even greater force in the case of Bible miracles, goes on to declare that, this being so, there is nothing one would more desire for a person or document one greatly values than to make them independent of miracles. Very well. The Gospels team with miracles. If we make the accounts of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ independent of miracles, we destroy those accounts completely. To make the resurrection independent of miracles is to disprove the resurrection, which is a miracle or nothing. We must believe in miracles or disbelieve in the resurrection, and miracles never happen. We must believe in miracles or disbelieve in them. If we disbelieve in them, we shall lose confidence in the verity of any document in proportion to the element of the miraculous which that document contains. The fact that the Gospels team with miracles destroys the claim of the Gospels to serious consideration as historic evidence. Take, for example, the account of the crucifixion in the Gospel according to Matthew. While Christ is on the cross, from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And when he dies, behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks were rent, and the tomb were opened, and many of the bodies of saints that had fallen asleep were raised, and coming forth out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered into the holy city and appeared unto many. Mark mentions the rending of the veil of the temple, but amidst the darkness, the earthquake, and the rising of the dead saints from the tombs. Luke tells of the same phenomena as Mark. John says nothing about any of these things. What conclusion can we come to, then, as to the story in the first gospel? Here is an earthquake and the rising of dead saints who quit their graves and enter the city, and three out of the four gospel writers do not mention it, nor do we hear another word from Matthew on the subject. The dead get up and walk into the city, and are seen of many, and we are left to wonder what happened to the risen saints, and what effect their astounding apparition had upon the citizens who saw them. Did these dead saints go back to their tombs? Did the citizens receive them into their midst without fear, or horror, or doubt? Had this stupendous miracle no effect upon the Jewish priest who had crucified Christ as an impostor? The Gospels are silent. History is as silent as the Gospels. From the 15th chapter of the first volume of Gibbon's Decline and the Fall of the Roman Emperor, I take the following passage. Quote, but how shall we excuse the supine inattention of the pagan and philosophic world to those evidences which were presented by the hand of omnipotence, nor to their reason, but to their senses? During the age of Christ, his apostles, and of their first disciples, the doctrine which they preached was confirmed by the innumerable prodigies. The lame walked, the blind saw, the sick were healed, and the dead were raised, demons were expelled, and the laws of nature were frequently suspended for the benefit of the church. But the sages of Greece and Rome turned aside from the awful spectacle, and pursuing the ordinary occupations of life and study, 
appeared unconscious of any alterations in the moral or physical government of the world. Under the reign of Tiberius, the whole earth, or at least a celebrated province of the Roman Empire, was involved in a preternatural darkness of three hours. Even this miraculous event, which ought to have excited the wonder, the curiosity, and the devotion of all mankind, passed without notice in an age of science and history. It happened during the lifetime of Seneca and the elder Pliny, who must have experienced the immediate effects or received the earliest intelligence of the prodigy. Each of these philosophers, in a laborious work, has recorded all the great phenomena of nature, earthquakes, meteors, comets, and eclipses, which his indefatigable curiosity could collect. But the one and the other have omitted to mention the greatest phenomena to which mortal eyes has been witnessed since the creation of the globe. A distinct chapter of Pliny is designated for eclipses of an extraordinary nature and unusual duration, but he contents himself with describing the singular defect of light which followed the murder of Caesar when, during the greatest part of the year, the orb of the sun appeared pale and without splendor. This season of obscurity, which surely cannot be compared with the preternatural darkness of the passion, had been already celebrated by most of the poets and historians of that memorable age. Unquote. No Greek nor Roman historian nor scientist mentioned that strange eclipse. No Jewish historian nor scientist mentioned the reddening of the veil of the temple, nor the rising of the saints from the dead. Nor do the Jewish priests appear to have been alarmed or converted by these marvels. Confronted by the silence of all contemporary historians and by the silence of Mark, Luke, and John, what are we to think of the testimony of Matthew on these points? Surely we can only endorse the opinions of Matthew Arnold. Quote, and the more miraculousness of the story depends, as after the death of Jesus, the more does the texture of the incidents become loose and floating. The more does the very air and aspect of things seem to tell us we are in wonderland. Jesus, after his resurrection, not known by Mary Magdalene, taken by her for the gardener, appearing in another form, and not known by the two disciples going with him to Emmaus, and at supper with him there, not known by his most intimate apostles on the borders of the Sea of Galilee, and presently, out of these vague beginnings, the recognitions getting asserted, then the ocular demonstrations, the final commissions, the ascensions, one hardly knows which of the two to call the most evident here, the perfect simplicity and good faith of the narrators, or the plainness with which they themselves really say to us, Behold, a legend growing under your eyes. Unquote. Behold a legend growing under your eyes. Now when we have to consider a miracle story or legend, it behooves us to look, if that be possible, into the times in which that legend is placed. What was the time spirit in the day when this legend arose? What was the attitude of the general mind towards the miraculous? To what stage of knowledge and science had those who created or accepted the myth attained? These are points that will help us singly in any attempt to understand such a story as the gospel story of the resurrection. End of section 16. Recorded by Jared Duran.